In just a few weeks, we're going to begin a, a new teaching series out of the, Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you want to grab your New Testament and start reading through that letter, you can get a jump start. All right? But between now and when we start Colossians, we're going to do just a little mini teaching series called Dangerous Prayers. And um, <clears throat> polls say that everyone, almost everyone, prays at some point in the day in their life. You know, maybe it's before a meal or before bed or with your kids or you're praying in the car, you're praying for a particular need, uh, thanking God for something, confessing something, some kind of prayer. But what would happen if we took on a dangerous prayer, one of the dangerous prayers in the Bible. What dramatic thing could happen in our lives as a result? And there are many of these prayers. We've picked out several. One of them is, uh, Father, help me to forgive my enemies. Um, what would that look like if we allowed ourselves to be released from the prison of lack of forgiveness? What would our lives look like? And the other one is, Father, give me an undivided heart. What would that look like if we decided to get off the fence in our Christian life and, and get out of neutral and stop eating only vanilla and uh, try to uh, really get engaged in our uh, fo uh, followership of Christ? So today, though, and we'll do those couple prayers in the next couple weeks, but uh, today we're going to look at actually a passage in Scripture with two prayers in it. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Let me remind us of the good news. The gospel, we use that term oftentimes, means good news. The good news is that God loves his creation. He loves you and me. Uh, we're born into a broken world. We're born into this world separated from God, but God, through the, through the person of Jesus, has made a way back to himself. And sometimes we make it more complicated than it is, more complex than it is. It's rather simple. Uh, a number of times in the New Testament, Jesus talks about what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, to be forgiven by God, to be in a relationship with God, to have eternal life from God. And um, <clears throat> sometimes we'll come across passages that need some careful interpretation. Maybe we need to get into the original Greek language or maybe some of the grammatical structure of the original language to see how it's, to help us understand what does the author want us to, to know about this particular passage. But the passage we're about to look at doesn't need any in-depth interpretation. I think the understanding will be immediate and then we'll make some observations following uh, this particular passage, which comes out of Luke chapter 18. It's a story that Jesus tells, and we'll get into it after we read it. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed this prayer. Here's our first, first of two prayers. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of all my income. How about that for a prayer? But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, and here's our second prayer, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus continues, I tell you this, 
I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The reason Jesus told this story is because there was confusion back then. There's even confusion today. Like, what does it take to be justified by God? Now, that's a heavy theological term. It just means to to be made. What does it take to be made right by God so we can have a relationship with God, so we can be sure we'll be with God in heaven one day, to be forgiven, to have eternal life? What does that take? And so Jesus tells this story to help make it clear. Now, to, to uh, drive home the point, he uses two extremes from society. He uses the Pharisee, we'll get to that in just a minute, and then he uses a tax collector. You can't imagine two greater extremes than these two. Now, uh, we'll get to the prayers themselves, but I thought it might be good to make a few observations about the Pharisee and about the tax collector, all right? So let's talk about the the Pharisees from back. Let me give you a little background to the Pharisees. Nobody really knows the origin of the Pharisees. It's sort of shrouded in mystery. The word Pharisee comes from the ancient language Aramaic, which means to be separated, which is not a bad thing. The reason they were separated, the reason they formed was to was in response to the Greek culture. Maybe you know some of the history from that part of the world way back. But the, the Greeks conquered the Middle East, and then along came the Romans, which is when Jesus lived during that time. But the Greeks introduced Greek mythology, and they introduced all kinds of beliefs that really were opposed to the teachings of Scripture. And so the Pharisees formed a group that would be separate from the Greek culture. And they took a stand for God's word and for obedience to God's word. Not a bad thing. Sometimes they get bad press, the Pharisees do. We'll get to that in a minute. But originally, it was a good thing. And people honor them for what they stood for. You know, in the Old Testament, of course, back then it was just called Scripture. It wasn't the Old Testament. It was just Scripture. There's like 600-plus laws in the Old Testament. And their desire was to keep every single one of those laws, to observe God's Word completely. That's That's a good thing. And so people honor them for doing that. But something happened over time. the Pharisees kind of got carried away. (laughs) You know, there's 600 plus laws in Scripture, and they decided to add a few more, and a few more. Eventually, they became known as the oral traditions. And they began to give equal weight to their added laws to what God's Word already said. And then they sort of began to develop sort of a a club, you know, a, a religious club, and then eventually a political club, and, and they, they became so influential in society. They began to make people feel like, like, if you don't live this way, then you will never be a part of God's kingdom. And, and uh, they, they, they put a heavy weight onto people. That's what the Pharisees were known for. Well, this is where the rub with Jesus came in. Jesus comes along and he looks at the Pharisees now as they've developed all of this extra, all of these extra regulations and rules and so on. And he said, you, 
You've made man-made rules equivalent to God's word. Not only that, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even live up according to what you've written. And not only that, you've made it difficult for people to find God. At one point in Scripture, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, seven different times. Well, what about today? Today we don't have the Pharisee sect, but the spirit of the Pharisees lives on. I would be interested to know your story. Some of you, perhaps, it's been a long time coming to church because you were afraid that we were all hypocrites, and we are. (laughs) But many people were afraid that church is like a club, and it can be in places where it's just a bunch of rules and rituals and regulations. In fact, I bet some of you, even at some point in your life, quit going to church altogether because that's all it was to you, a bunch of rules and rituals and regulations, almost in the Pharisaic tradition. And the church made it hard for you to find God. And so that's the prayer of the, of the Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, which, by the way, exceeded what Scripture called for, and I give you a tenth of my income. Those are the Pharisees. Now, what about the the tax collectors? Let's talk about that extreme of the spectrum of society. If you have an old King James Version Bible, Uh, instead of tax collector, it'll say publican. A publican was a tax farmer, and the publican was in charge of collecting taxes from the people. Um, When a conquering nation came in, what they would do is find a citizen in the nation they just conquered to be the one to go and collect taxes, to be the tax farmer, to be the publican, and to entice someone to become a publican. They would say, collect taxes for us, but you can also skim a little bit off the top for yourself. And so tax collectors became hated by their own culture because they were turncoats. They were traitors. They were wealthy. They were wealthy cheats. That was the tax collectors. And so um, what happened? (laughs) The Romans came in, took over the Middle East, And they found different Jewish people to become tax collectors, to become the publicans. And so, maybe you know this, but one of the first things Jesus did in his ministry was go and find 12 people to become his follower. And one of the guys he found was a man sitting at a tax collection booth by the name of Matthew. He looks at Matthew and he says, follow me, a tax collector. And then Jesus and Matthew go and hold a party at Matthew's house and invite all of Matthew's tax collector friends and other people like them. And the Pharisees, they come up to Jesus and they say, how can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's the way the Pharisees looked at tax collectors. That's the way everyone looked at tax collectors. They were the untouchables. They were at the far extreme of society, far outside the reach of God's grace and love and forgiveness. No way. What about today? Well, we have the IRS. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. People pick on the IRS and tax collectors. Living in the United States, I'm glad we have tax collectors. It's a good thing. 
But the way it was back then, oh my. But we have the equivalent today. All of us sitting here probably have in our minds a category of people, a group of people who we might consider based upon their lifestyle, based upon their beliefs, based upon their political views, whatever, who are outside of God's grace and forgiveness. There's no chance God would love them. So that's a little bit about the Pharisees on one side and the tax collectors on the other side. So <clears throat> I think I was, uh, I was drawn to this, to this particular passage. I don't know why I was drawn to this passage. You know, I, I knew we, were, we had a, um, a, this series coming up called Dangerous Prayers, and there's many dangerous prayers, and I'm excited that we're going to be talking about forgiving our enemies and what it means to get off the fence and have an undivided heart. But this one drew me in for some reason. And by the way, this was the prayer of the, of the tax collector. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. But there's something dangerous about both of these prayers. Dangerous in different ways. Dangerous in a bad way. Dangerous in a good way. And I want us to look at both of these. So this is, again, the prayer of the, of the Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, adulterers, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. I don't think I've ever heard anybody literally use those words or say something like that in a prayer. But, but the, the, here's the danger that the words of this prayer can somehow find their way into our thinking, can find their way into our personal theology, and then dangerously affect the way we approach God. we got to watch that. So this is a dangerous prayer in the bad sense. In what way is this prayer dangerous? Let's walk, you through, let's walk through a few. Comparison of self to others. Um, comparing others is, ourselves to others is pretty common. Maybe you even did it this morning when you drove in. Uh, I, I don't know. We can compare all kinds of things. I'm really into cycling, and so when I'm on the path, I see somebody's bike that is lesser than mine, but I see somebody's bike that's greater than mine. And we do that with houses, and we do it with cars, and we do it with our kids, and we do it with our health, and we do it with all kinds of things. I like to compare Ohio State to Michigan. It's a great time to compare... <laughs> It's a great time to compare because, you know, it's always fun to compare when you want to look better than somebody, right? By the way, if you, if you don't like where you live or your standard of living, come with me to Burundi sometime, and you'll immediately feel better about your life, right? So we can always find some way to make ourselves feel better comparing. The, the, this Pharisee... <clears throat> Um, he, he, he didn't cheat, he didn't commit adultery, he wasn't an evildoer, he fasted, he tithed, good for him, he was a good moral person, those are good things. The problem is, is his standard of comparison. He compared down. <laughs> he picked on the tax collectors and people like them. Of course he's going to look great, right? We can all do that. Again, his problem was his standard of comparison. Yesterday, my wife and I were at a wedding. 
Third weekend in a row of weddings. The first one, our son, then our nephew, and then yesterday, a really close friend of our daughter's. And as we said in this church, the first two were outdoors, beautiful weddings. Yesterday, it was inside of a church, and there were pews there. And in the back of the pew uh, were these Bibles. And every single Bible had on the front, Holy Bible. Maybe you have a a Bible at home that says Holy Bible. And the reason it says Holy, Bible means book, the reason it says holy is because inside, all of the words inside are the expressions of the words of a holy God, which means that God is morally perfect, without defect. Now, what happens when you compare yourself to a holy God? Well, now we put things into perspective. The Apostle Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees in the book of Romans, he comes to faith in Christ he, he, he gets to the point and at the, near the end of chapter 2, and he says, there is no one righteous. There is no one who is perfect like God. In chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It all depends who you compare yourself to. So that's the first mistake as this Pharisee dangerously approaches God with these thoughts. Okay, let's go on to the next one contractual arrangement with God. That that also is evident in this Pharisee's prayer. Contractual arrangement with God. You know the term idolatry. You'll find it in the Old Testament. God warns about idolatry. All the religions of the world are based upon idolatry, except for true Christianity. Idolatry goes like this. If I do this and this and this, then I will apply leverage to get my God to do this over here. That's what idolatry is, in essence. And this is what the Pharisee was saying. Look what I've done. I've done this and this and this. I've not done these things. And therefore, God, you will let me into your presence. You will justify me. That's a contractual arrangement with God. Maybe you've signed contracts before. I will do this and this and this, and you pay me. Contractual arrangement. Some of us were raised in churches that taught contractual arrangement. I've talked to many people over the years where the church basically taught, if you do this and this and this, then you will have a relationship with God. It's the kind of church I grew up in. Maybe you too. That's a contractual relationship with God, which leaves us then with one problem. We have confidence in our own self-righteousness. Should be up there. There we go. Right there. That's the wrong word. There we go. Confidence and righteousness. Confidence and self-righteousness. You know, one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the bad things about being a pastor is that people expect you to talk about spiritual things and about God, right? But one of the good things about being a pastor is that people expect you to talk about spiritual things and about God. And it's really neat at times to get into conversations with people. And, and one of the things that I, I, I like to, to find out is what, what makes you think God will invite you into a relationship with him? What makes you think that, that he'll allow you into heaven day, one day with him? And, and what becomes apparent with, in many conversations, I grew up this way. People have this image of, of sort of carrying a, a box, a box, And in this box is all kinds of stuff, all of the good things they've done. And they're going to lay this big box down on God's big cosmic scale. And if it's heavy enough, 
to outweigh the bad things they've done in life, then they're in. If not, they're out. And what I'd like to ask someone is, how do you know when you've done enough? How, how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when your box is big enough? How do you know? And sometimes people say, I, I don't know. I say, that's a dead-end road. It's, it's like a salesperson being told to meet a quota, but never told what the quota is. And the quota is perfection. We compare ourselves to a holy God who is morally perfect. So those are some of the problems in approaching God with these thoughts. Now let's, let's talk about um, this prayer. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Dangerous, but dangerous in a different way. Maybe you know the story of the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is the, is the Jesus type in the story. He's, he's a lion. And one of the kids asks Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And, and Mr. Beaver says, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. This is danger in a good way. This prayer has danger in a good way. What do I mean by that? Um, it requires humility. We'll get to that verse in just a second. Imagine yourself. Imagine, imagine going through life, believing um, certain things, behaving in certain ways, holding to certain things, and then one day, in a, in a flash of a light, or over a period of time, understanding that what you believed and how you behaved was wrong. And it was outside of God's will. So Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This, this must have just shocked the people who were hearing this story because they're thinking, this is a, a Pharisee. Look at the size of his box. And the tax collector has absolutely nothing. Did you, did you hear the, the song we sang just before the message, Rock of Ages? There's a little line in that song I love. It says this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The dividing line between the Pharisee and the tax collector was humility. That can be hard sometimes. Humility can be, if not dangerous, it can be scary because it's unsettling and it's uncomfortable to admit that we've been wrong and that we need help. It could be when Jesus was telling the story, he thought, you know, I need a physical illustration to show what I'm trying to tell through this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So maybe in the middle of the story or near the end of the story, some women started approaching Jesus. And I say that because the very next set of verses right after the story, this is what happens. Some moms, women with their children, come up to Jesus 
and they want Jesus to bless their babies. Now, that was common for moms to bring their children to rabbis to have them blessed. And, and the disciples who were around Jesus, Matthew might have been one of them, said to these women, get out of here, we're busy. And Jesus said, no, don't keep the children from coming to me. This is the perfect illustration. Anybody who comes to God must come like a little child. Now, what do we know about children? <laughs> they need help. Humbly, they admit their need, and they trust. And that's all God is saying to us. I just want you to come to me. I need help. I am a sinner. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So humility, that's, that's one element of this prayer. Oh God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. The second requirement in this prayer, or element of danger, is it requires bravery. Um, some people think that Jesus had a particular tax collector in mind when he told this story. Do you know who it might be? Zacchaeus. And the reason they think it might be Zacchaeus is because in the very next chapter, in the very first verse, comes the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And people despised him. They hated him. The way the crowd reacted to Zacchaeus, he must have been incredibly, incredibly crooked. But apparently, or maybe, he was in the crowd listening to Jesus tell this story. And Zacchaeus not only believes, but he allows his outward actions to reflect his inward belief in Jesus. And Jesus comes to his home, and, and Zacchaeus offers to pay back those he cheated four times the amount that he took from them. That takes bravery, doesn't it? To openly declare, I was wrong. To openly declare, I'm a follower of Jesus. When you've lived your life that long, that way. I remember when I uh, first became a Christian around age 20. That was a hard thing for me, and maybe you've been there. It was difficult for me to think about telling the guys that I grew up with, the guys that I played football with, the guys that I hung out with, that now I am a Jesus guy. Now I believe in God. And, and not just that, but over time, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to do this, and here's why. That takes bravery, doesn't it? It took bravery for Zacchaeus. It took bravery for me to do that. I still at times, when I'm in certain circles, I don't know. If they don't know I'm a pastor, I don't know whether to say, you know, it's just... Because it takes swimming against culture, swimming upstream, flying upside down. That's what it requires. And maybe that's for you too, perhaps, being that brave. So here's the thing. It doesn't take much to enter into the kingdom of God. When I first accepted Christ, all I said was, God, I want you in my life. Please forgive me. That's it. And maybe you've prayed a prayer like that. That's all it takes. It just takes humility to say, God, I want you in my life. 
I will follow you. Then the bravery part comes. It doesn't take much to enter into the kingdom of God. I need you. It takes bravery to walk with Christ. And maybe that's where you are right now, at work or at home, and God's pressing in on you. I need for you to pattern your life in a certain way that your outside life reflects what you believe on the inside. Somebody once said that that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I don't know who said that, but they are incredibly wrong. It's, it's, it's not true, and it's not in the Bible. Now, it is true that the best place to be is in the center of God's will. But sometimes, following Christ can be a dangerous thing. Talk to our friends in India or other places in the world, or just look at your own life. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, it's unsettling, and yet it is the right thing. There's no better place to be than in the center of God's will because he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. One last thing. This prayer, O God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That prayer will get you into the kingdom of heaven. That prayer, if said with humility, will will bring you the justification of God we read about in the story. But you know, as, as a Christ follower who now has been a Christian for, I don't know, a long time, and maybe you too, we walk in a world that is filthy and dirty. We, we get stains on us. That's a great prayer for any Christian every day of our lives. Oh God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. My favorite verse in the Bible, you've heard me say it before, It's from James chapter 4. It's from 1 Peter chapter 5. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. It's from the book of Proverbs. It's threaded throughout Scripture that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's dangerous, but it's right and it's good. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you for your word and for the reminder that we bring nothing to you. It's all by your grace. We are saved. We are justified. I pray for anyone here who has never, ever really put their trust in you, that they would do that, that they would find their freedom, their forgiveness from you through simply saying, I need you, for I am a sinner. For all of us who have walked through the mud of life, would you help us just to Once again, cry out, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. These are the prayers you hear. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.